0: If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at infodenverchurch.org. At to get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching.
1: Good morning and welcome to the first week of Lent. As I look around the room and I think about the many faith journeys you all have shared with me, I realize that we probably have a wide variety of experiences with the Lenten season. For some of you, I know you grew up in a more liturgical tradition. You probably are well-versed in why we celebrate Lent. And you probably have a long history with Lent. For some of you, maybe Lent was one of the few seasons of the liturgical calendar that you were aware of. Maybe your church didn't really follow the the calendar all that closely. For some of you, maybe you came to faith later in life. Maybe DCC is your first experience with church. And maybe it's your first experience with Lent. And for some of you, maybe you have an experience with Lent more similar to my own. See, despite being raised inside of a Christian faith my whole life, I would say I was fairly unfamiliar with Lent. The tradition I came from really wanted to kind of focus our attention on those pieces of the gospel that talked about abundance, that talked about more and more, those pieces that feel really good. Those are the pieces of being in Christ that are most familiar to me. And when I think about what Lent was like for me growing up, Here's what I remember. Every spring, one of my friends, who did have a little bit richer tradition with Lent, would come to me and say, what are you giving up for Lent? And my response would be, nothing, I'm a Pentecostal. (laughs) See, I knew that Lent had something to do with fasting, and I knew that for some of my friends, Lent had something to do with giving up meat on Fridays. Though, that particular tradition I was not aware of because I knew about the traditions of other Christians. I was aware of that because of McDonald's filet of fish <laughs> So I'm a little embarrassed to say, Lent was a little fuzzy to me. Now, I'll say I don't think there was anything particularly wrong with the fact that I didn't participate in Lent. But I will say, as I have started to think about our liturgical calendar, and as I have started to become more and more acquainted with it, I realize not that there are Christian obligations built into our seasons, but that there are invitations. There are lots of calendars that we keep. We keep work calendars, we keep school calendars, we keep kids calendars, we keep sports calendars, we keep a church calendar. And these calendars are a tool for us to orient our lives, to prioritize those things that are really important to us. Our life is filled with seasons and our faith is no different. In her work on the liturgical year, Joan Chittitzer, who is a nun and theologian, says this, Like a great water wheel, the liturgical year goes on relentlessly irrigating our souls, softening the ground of our hearts, nourishing the soil of our lives until the seed of the Word of God itself begins to grow in us, comes to fruit in us, ripens in us the spiritual journey of a lifetime. So goes the liturgical year through all the days of our lives. It concentrates us on the two great poles of the faith, the birth and death of Jesus of Nazareth. But as Christmas and Easter trace the life of Jesus for us from beginning to end, the liturgical year does even more. It also challenges our own life and vision and sense of meaning, both a guide to greater spiritual maturity and a path to deepen spiritual life. The liturgical year leads us through all the great questions of faith as it goes. It rehearses the dimensions of our life over and over for us all the years of our days. As I think about that, and I think about our passage this morning, I realize that this passage calls me to reflect on some of those pieces of faith that are a little bit harder for me to stomach. I realize that being in Christ is both being there in Christ's darkest days and yours, and also being there for the resurrection. See, when Lent was initially uh, brought about, it was the fourth century, and it was a means to prepare people for the Christian life. Those who were coming to faith for the first time, and also those who had apostatized, or those who had rejected the faith, usually in light of persecution. Lent serves as a reminder that our faith is about celebration and it's also about suffering. This morning, we are in Matthew chapter 26. We'll be looking at verses 47 through 56. The words will appear on the screen behind me, um, but also if you would prefer a paper Bible, there will be one under one of the seats in front of you or around you. Our text says this, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the ear of the, uh, uh, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this all has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. As I read this passage, I realize it's a fairly unpopular one. Now, when I say unpopular, I don't mean unfamiliar. See, I find that most people, whether they count themselves in the faith or just adjacent to it, are familiar with this story. This is the kind of story that's why there's not a lot of Judases running around in a society that considers itself Christian. And when I think about this story, I realize that there's something to the emotional turmoil that makes it familiar. See, here I am, left alone in the garden with Jesus. I watch Jesus crying out to God, saying, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And while his disciples are physically present, the text tells us that they're asleep. And when Jesus comes to confront them, he's cut off mid-sentence as Judas shows up and hands him over to the religious authorities. This text doesn't seem to have a silver lining. Except for maybe that one moment where one of the disciples stands up for Jesus. Where one of the disciples cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. That's the moment I think, oh, maybe there's the hope I'm looking for in this story. Maybe there's somebody who's going to bring justice. Maybe there's somebody that sees that Jesus is being wrongfully arrested and they're going to do something about it. But then Jesus rebukes that disciple, the disciple that John will later identify as Peter. And we're left with this sentence. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. What's interesting is this passage isn't just familiar to you and I. It's not just familiar to a post-crucifixion crowd. This passage and this story with Peter would have been familiar to Matthew's contemporaries. It would have been familiar to the disciples before they ever showed up in the garden on that day. See, as the saying goes history has a way of repeating itself. And what happens here in the garden with Peter and that, uh, the priest servant this is a repeat of history. Yeah. Roughly 150 years before Jesus' birth, before the Romans have taken over the Greeks, the Jews are living under Hellenistic rule. And there is a ruler by the name of Antiochus that decides that the Jews' way of life is anti-Hellenism. So, what he does is he goes into the temple of the Jews and he slaughters a pig on the altar of the Jews to the god Zeus. And the the Jews rebel successfully in what we refer to as the Maccabean Revolt. For the next roughly 100 years, the Jews will live under the Maccabean dynasty or the Hasmonean dynasty until two brothers start to fight over who is going to be the high priest and potentially king of the Jews. And here, both brothers go to outside sources, including Rome, to try and help them in their uh, quest for power. One of those outside sources, Rome, will come in in the year 63 BCE and take over Jerusalem. But here's where the repeat of history is. Here's where this is interesting to our story today. Aristobulus, one of the brothers, cuts off his brother Hyrcanus II's ear to disqualify him from serving as a high priest. So when we find ourselves in the garden and we see Peter cutting off the high priest's servant's ear, it's not as some scholars have suggested because he meant to slit his throat and missed. This would have been a calculated action. Peter knows exactly the message that he is sending. Some scholars have said this is why Matthew doesn't record Peter's name here, because he's trying to protect Peter. And in that, I realize Judas isn't the only betrayer in the garden that day. All of the disciples have betrayed Jesus in this moment. I think it's here that maybe Jesus' words start to make sense. I just picture the disciples going, wait, when he said to be great in the kingdom, I have to be servant of all? Did he mean... Or when he said pick up your cross and follow me, that's how you'll be a disciple. Did he literally mean we're going to be crucified? And when he told us he was going to get Crucified? Did he mean that too? And I think it's in that moment that the disciples finally understand Jesus. I think it's in that moment where they hear his teachings and they go, nah, fam, I'm not here for that. (laughs) It's in that moment that the disciples go, I heard the scriptures a little bit different and they abandon Jesus and I get that. Look, I've been a Christian long enough to have these moments where I have been disappointed when I realize that what I thought Jesus was saying wasn't actually what Jesus was saying. Sometimes I find something about my faith is actually calling me into greater power and greater influence that I didn't realize I had. But more often than not, I am met with the recognition that to be great in the kingdom of God is to be servant to all. It is so much easier to chase power and influence than it is to submit and serve. That is hard. So when I hear what the disciples do in the garden, that could have been me. Now, Judas, I find a little bit more confusing. And actually, I don't know that you can really read this story without going, why did Judas do what he did? In fact, all four of the gospel writers seem to ask this question. For Mark and Matthew, Judas did it for money. If you ask the gospel writer of Luke, Judas was a pawn of Satan himself. The evil one has entered Judas, and that's why he does what he does. If you ask the book of John why this happens, he says because it was part of the divine plan. Somebody had to betray Jesus, so why not Judas? And this question doesn't stop with the gospel writers. Scholars continue to ask this question. Some have said maybe Judas understood Jesus before the other disciples. Maybe he heard those lessons that Jesus was teaching and he went, oh, I see the scriptures a little bit different and I'm not really here for this. Maybe Judas betrays Jesus so he can return to his former faith. For other scholars, they've maintained that Judas did this because he was trying to incite a rebellion. He believes that Jesus is going to be the Messiah who is going to overthrow Rome or who's going to take back the temple, but he feels like Jesus just isn't getting to the punchline fast enough. He thinks, if I back him into a corner, he will fight his way out like the Jews have done so many times before. And these scholars will tell you, that's why when Jesus is crucified rather than crowned, Judas is in such deep despair. Why did Judas betray Jesus? I don't really know. And while I get the disciples in this story, while I can see myself right alongside them, while I'm left kind of scratching my head when I think about Judas and why he did what he does, who I find completely confusing in this story, is Jesus. I have been betrayed. If I asked you to raise your hands, I would be shocked if anyone's hand was left down. We know what betrayal feels like. Recently, I was introduced to the work of Holly Kinley, She is a marriage therapist who has devoted her life's work to the work on betrayal. And on the one hand, while Kenley has been motivated to study betrayal because of her clients, she shares another story that had a massive impact on her life. She says, there was a Wednesday afternoon when she called her father She says this is part of their routine. Several times a week, they have just a short chat to catch up. She describes this phone call a little like I think we would imagine um, any positive relationship with an, an adult talking to a parent. She talks about how they exchange thoughts about the weather. She talks about sharing different TV shows they're watching together. She talks about having this moment of just, hey, I'll chat with you on Friday. I love you so much. And she reflects on getting off the phone and thinking about how far her relationship has come with her father. She talks about herself as an adoring daughter, a daughter who wants to make her father proud. That Friday, she calls her father and is met with silence. Silence. She's across the country, so she kind of sounds the alarm bells. Within the hour, paramedics are walking through the door of her parents' home, and they find the two on the floor, barely alive. What Kenley comes to find out is that Wednesday afternoon after her conversation with her father, her parents planned and carried out an attempted dual suicide. Kenley talks about the sting of betrayal. She says, we often try to treat betrayal like we treat grief. We try and give it time. We think if we go through the different stages of grief, eventually our betrayal will work itself out. But Kenley says, she doesn't think that works. She says grief is a loss of someone or something else. But betrayal is a loss of ourselves. She goes on to describe it in this way. The loss of self is buried in shame. It includes the loss of innocence and identity, the loss of role and reputation, the loss of being seen and being heard. In Kenley's words, I feel seen. When I'm betrayed, I have let somebody close to me, someone I have trusted, Steal something from me. I think about betrayal as this whiplash. You know that moment that time does kind of help us reframe? When you're thinking back to that moment of betrayal and you're like, "Ooh, if I would have known, I would have said X, Y, and Z, and then that person really would have gotten it. We reframe our story over and over again, trying to find ourselves, trying to steady ourselves. And this is what makes Jesus precisely so confusing to me because the truth is, while Jesus experienced uh, betrayal, he didn't experience the same kind of whiplash that you and I do. Jesus knew Jesus sat at dinner with his disciples just hours before this, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Judas lies to his face, and Jesus knows it. And Judas eats too. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, but he washes his feet before they share a meal together. And when Judas shows up in the garden, Jesus doesn't say, I told you so. He doesn't say, E too, Judas. Jesus lets Judas get close enough to him that to give him a kiss and betray him. I totally don't get Jesus in this moment. Richard Rohr, in reflecting on this story in the Lenten season, says this. And here it happens to Jesus from two of his own inner circle both Judas and Peter. The more love and hope you have invested in another person, the deeper the pain of betrayal is. If it happens at a deep and personal level, we wonder if we will ever trust again. Your heart does break. It is one of those crossroad moments when the breaking can forever close you down or, in time, just the opposite, open you up to an enlargement of the soul. As we will see in Jesus this week, What is happening is that we are withdrawing a human dependency, finding grace to forgive and let go, and relocating our little self in the self, God, which never betrays us. What are you being asked to give up for Lent? Everything. Being a Christian isn't about your call. Being a Christian isn't about your kingdom. Being a Christian isn't about justifying yourself. Being a Christian is about finding yourself in Christ. It's about finding this one wild, precious life that you have and finding it inside the life of the divine. It's not about building my kingdom. It's about building God's kingdom. Look, If even Jesus wasn't surrounded by a community that wasn't going to have betrayal or hurt or wounding, I don't know why that would be my expectation. Finding myself in Christ doesn't mean that I'm not going to be hurt or that I'm not going to be betrayed. What it means is that when I have that experience, I reorient myself. I find myself in the life of Christ. I find my darkest days in the darkest days of Jesus's, not in the darkest days of Judas or Peter's. I find myself, like Christ, building the kingdom of God at whatever cost because it's not about me. I'm going to invite the band um, to join me as we move towards communion, and I have a couple of reminders for us. Um, Logistically, the bread is all uh, gluten-free. In the shorter cup, you'll find juice, and the taller one, wine. Take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in either the wine or juice um, and return to your seat. If you'll come down uh, this middle aisle or side aisles and return to your seat down the diagonals, that would be helpful. Um, As we move towards Eucharist today, uh, I wanna read some words over you that I used to read over my house church every single week as we came to the practice of communion. Here we practice what is referred to as open table communion, which means there are no requirements to partake in this practice. We participate in the practice of communion alongside our fellow family in Christ. As both an opportunity to reflect on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection— and as a corporate practice and community. So you may recall on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and drank wine with his disciples. At the Last Supper and the First Communion, he ate with the disciple who would faithfully care for his mother during his crucifixion. He broke bread with the disciple who would deny him for fear of facing the same fate. And he broke bread with the man who would betray him only hours later. As we partake in communion, we reflect not only on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but we reflect on the radical participation in community, in the kingdom of God, which Jesus both modeled for us and called us to. After all, the true test of following Christ is not to love Jesus, but to love Judas. Come as you are led.